0: This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 106 of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Today, I'm pleased to interview Christopher Chong, CEO of Momenta Ventures portfolio company, SST Wireless. Christopher brings over 30 years of executive experience in media, technology, and marketing across Canada and the United States. Notable positions include CEO of Chalk Media Corporation, which produced network television and lifestyle shows and Director of Business Development for Blast Radius, the premier provider of web marketing for brands such as Nike, Nintendo, BMW, and Air Canada. Early in his career, Christopher founded Vancouver Online Inc, a pioneering online community for destination-based web portals and local shopping. Christopher has been a guest university lecturer and is a sought-after speaker for his expertise in marketing and technology. So welcome, Christopher.
1: Well, thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been looking forward to this and I've been thinking a lot about our conversation. So thank you for having me.
0: Perfect. It's it's long overdue since we announced our investment in in you quite a while ago. So uh, it's well, it's, uh, it's a <laughs> it's a good opportunity to finally interview the man behind the uh, the legend, if you will.
1: Absolutely. But uh, you know, your investment and into us was uh, just kind of you know precursor to a very interesting time, wasn't it?
0: Perfect. <laughs> well, Adam it, it, it and really we was. Go. Yeah. And we'll def- we'll definitely talk about that a bit in <laughs> uh, in in our interview here. So let's start with your professional journey. You know, tell us a bit about your background and how it has informed your views of digital industry
1: yeah it's been a really interesting road i I was thinking about this i mean i started noticing technology i think as a child and i found uh, all of that very fascinating and wanted to understand how things worked. um i do recall with my dad telling me not long ago that i took pretty much everything in the house apart Uh, there's a long list of things i disassembled but uh, never really been able to put back together and uh, my mom reminded me one time that You know, I had been dragging all these uh, computers home, uh, a massive CPM machine with 10 inch floppy drives. And and one time, somehow, I got my hands on a a digital VAX PDP, which is a a mini computer the size of a refrigerator. And to my mother's horror, every time I turned this thing on, the lights in the house would dim and and the floors would start vibrating. But I want to know what was going on. And back in the early days, I thought I was going to be a, a programmer. Um, But that didn't end up being my path after all. Uh, I had a business with a friend of mine in high school, and we were doing software. And and one day he told me that simply I was really a pretty bad programmer. And uh, he was a bit of a genius, so I knew he was right. So we kind of made this decision that I would focus on the business side of things, you know, like sales and marketing, the human side of things. And that's kind of how I started into my career in technology marketing. But fundamentally, Technology and, and digital industry has always been in the back of my mind since I, I was a child, and I think I'll, I'll never really leave that field. And, uh, you know, I've done lots of uh, crazy, funny things, especially when I was young when it comes to the, you know, in the industry, but uh, it's kind of fun to look back on it.
0: Yeah, I imagine uh, you had a bit of a folklore start, creating Vancouver Online, the first client-server destination-based internet portal, offering advertising and corporate intranets, even offering free dial-up service, uh, I guess, di- directly against uh, some of the peers at the time, uh, providing yeah. web access and, and of course, uh, services like email accounts. Um, we were talking beforehand about the uh, AMC series, Halt and Catch Fire, and it seems yeah. like you were creating something right around the same genre at at the same time that they've covered that. So, what inspired you to jump into this space uh, at this time, beyond, of course, the uh, big CPM machine?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there was a bunch of other things that I saw happening. Um, I think I was quite idealistic at that time, and I, I thought that technology was going to make everything better, democratize everything, make lives better, improve it, information available to everyone, you know, at, at, at any time they wanted. And, uh, you know, obviously things have turned out a little bit differently, but I think deep down I'm still very idealistic about the future and how digital technology is transforming that. So in the 80s, uh, I had a bulletin board system. Uh, that was called the IRS, uh, called Information Retrieval Service, and it was a you know solid base of users, a community where people got together, exchanged information, and, and I kept on adding stuff about government, law, you know, other things I felt people should know, and I ran it as a hobby for a number of years until I got a letter from the uh, actual Internal Revenue Service saying that I can't use IRS for the board name, <laughs> so it kind of kind of was the end of that one. But you know, fast forward a few years. And back in 1994, here in Canada, we were dealing with something that could possibly break up the country and it was called the Quebec referendum. And uh, people were arguing about the politics of it. And a lot of people were talking about the constitution, changing the Bill of Rights and Freedoms. But when I looked around and, and talked to people, uh, what I realized that very few people had even read the constitution, um, things that we were being asked to vote on or the, or the Quebecois were being asked to vote on. So people were uh, simply not informed and it was really not easy to get access to that kind of information. You could run down to the library, you know, look at all these tried things, but people didn't do it. So it was at the early stages of the World Wide Web, and I felt that I could provide a service that could keep people informed, kind of like you know, going back to the BBS days. So I kind of merged the concept of the BBS that I had with the web, uh, found a company in the US that had a client-server platform that ran on Macs. I leased a bunch of uh, ISDN lines from the local phone company and then proceeded to create a program to split them off into 288k uh, phone lines. If you remember back, you had the dial-up modems, right? Uh, not like the uh, mm-hmm. high bandwidth that we have today. And so I put together this company called Vancouver Online. And uh, we set up shop in a an, an area called Gastown, which is an old district of Vancouver with you know the brick uh, exposed walls <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we made up all these little... Uh, client software disks uh, on a three-and-a-half-inch floppy for a PC and Mac, and, and made them available to anyone uh, at computer stores, retail stores, and people would simply install the software, connect to our service, and basically, I was taking on the concept of America Online. But the difference was that we were a free platform funded by local companies advertising, uh, creating virtual offices, shops. This is before e-commerce. and So people are you know, downloading or printing coupons and reading them the dream was really to replicate the service in a bunch of cities and then network these cities together so that there always is a base level of access to information and communication and community for everyone regardless whether they had the, the money to pay for access or not so you know in the end we didn't make it uh, I chosen to build our system on an open standard browser, and then the industry kind of split into the Netscape and the Explorer camp. And I was trying to raise capital to expand and, and recode and do all this other stuff. Uh, but the VCs didn't really understand why they would want to invest in a free service, um, especially during that time, like 1994, 95, 96. Um, the internet service providers were all hemorrhaging money badly. But uh, that was the idea of Vancouver Online. You know, it, it was a tough time, I had lots of fun, but uh, you know, in the end, it was, I think, one of the most memorable times in my life.
0: Oh man, I can imagine. And again, it, it brings back series uh, or uh, episodes from the Halt and Catch Fire series,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, all the way down to the browsers. <laughs> I oh, it, it was, it was. It was uh, <laughs> you know, we, I standardized on Mosaic, because that was kind okay. of like, yep. you go with the standard, right? Yep. But uh, obviously, the corporate uh, versions is really what took off.
0: Yeah. Well, look, you went you went on to play a leading role at a number of companies in the nascent then digital marketing space, including your work at Chuck Media. What attracted you to this space, and what were some of your early learnings, especially through the famed .dot com crash? Which, by the way, I think we've just celebrated the twenty year anniversary of uh, back in March. So I
1: know I, I can't believe it's been twenty years. Actually, <laughs> I know. yeah, that's yeah. I felt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. It's, it's, you know, everything kind of has. I guess one thing leads to another, right? So my experience at Vancouver Online, um, I got to do a lot of that. Well, one thing that we were able to do with the client server and the web was do a lot of kind of creative digital media type of work. So I went to work with a company called Blast Radius, which was one of the premier digital shops in Canada, very focused on the technology. And I really want to get deep into it. So I was trying to figure out how to translate what brands wanted to create an online experience versus just putting pictures and text up. So this meant that it had to be more than just a display or the content management, and you had to go into actually making the, the relevant uh, experience for people and make it very personal. So you know, using content management, customer segmentation, profiling, serving up custom content streams, and this was all in the early days of it where a lot of back backend technologies didn't exist. So one of the things I remember is creating a project for how do you, how do you promote tourism in Canada? <laughs> so this was a national website for Canada itself the entire country. So we need to aggregate content from the local destination management organizations, what they call DMOs, feed that into the regional, then into the provincial, and then into a national platform. And the concept was, you know, if a family from New Jersey, want to go to uh, Quebec, uh, Montreal, for example, to experience a unique European feeling in North America, the site would understand what they're looking for, and then serve up all the content and make recommendations. So that's kind of where i went into it you know we went into chalk media and and then i went to look at well multi-platform so web tv online video learning and even in-flight entertainment so people sitting in airplanes uh, looking at that screen that used to have in the airplane right and using that as a marketing channel as well so that's all the kind of stuff i did um you know i think the dot com thing was interesting i didn't see it when it was happening know, I was in the industry, but I didn't really see it. Uh, There's a few things I saw where I thought things were crazy. I started seeing tech companies and founders become glorified and whole mythologies built around them. But um, I, I didn't <laughs> see it happen. Yeah, it is. I think the hype uh, was the significant part. And I think the more people buy into the hype, especially if they come vested in that company, uh, they really can't turn back. And, uh, you know, the biggest lesson I learned from the dot-com days, because, um, you know, I've had a few failures in that area, is being too early. Uh, we'll get you some street creds <laughs> for pioneering and so on, but it usually won't lead to success or longevity. And I think being too late means that you're just kind of being a me too and you end up in that noise. And it's really hard to get past that noise and Mm. you know so when i look at um all the things we've done in the digital industry uh, i think the idea that you know everything has a best before date and you kind of have to be aware of that
0: You know, it's a, it's a great lead in because uh, all, all of this work culminated in you joining SST Wireless in 2013, which uh, again, at the front end of the, the curve of what we you know, say uh, is uh, the industrial IoT. So, uh, SST, a developer manufacturer of industrial wireless sensors and technologies, helping increase safety, reducing operational downtime, decreasing environmental impact. It seems like a quite a leap from your past marketing work um, so what would you say is the red thread that brought you from you know the bet ba- the, the past into uh, into SST in 2013
1: yes yeah, true i mean going from digital marketing to content generation and stuff into a hardware company was a leap and keep in mind though i've always been fascinated with hardware hardware starting from as a kid you know uh, bringing all kinds of stuff home but when i joined SST uh, i didn't have deep insights into the industrial iot or industry 4.0 as it's called I think that the common thread through all of this is the fact that I've always been looking for a way to make things accessible, whether back in the BBS days or Vancouver Online days, is how do I get, you know, things accessible to people? How do I take digital technology so that people can actually use it and and you know get that potential out of it? So that's kind of how it started and. You know, I was kind of lucked out. I was asked by one of the early investors in the company, uh, someone I've known for a number of years, and he had, you know, had this company, he invested, he goes, I don't know what we're going to do yet. Um, So take a look at it, write me a report. And what I did is I looked at some of the early successes the company had with uh, tire temperature, pressure marching for large format trucks, some success in transit. But what I saw was the fact that they had done something interesting. Um, They had started delivering something that made sense for a lot of industries and so what i wanted to do is to focus the company on how do you uh, leverage the underlying technology to provide access to industrial iot and monitoring equipment regardless of the resources technical skills and all that kind of stuff which i felt were huge barriers so we kind of set off on uh, about five years ago to do that specifically
0: Mm. The, uh, I like that making things accessible and uh, it, it probably parlays very well into the way you've described SST's purpose, is removing the barriers to industrial IoT for any size of customer, regardless of their technology resources. So, say a bit more about what this means and, and relative to your, your, your client base.
1: Sure. You know, it was because when I started attending a number of conferences on uh, industrial IoT and Industry 4.0 and a lot of the conferences were centered around Germany because, you know, that's where I think a lot of this concept has started. So everywhere I went, the main topic seemed to be analytics, whether it's uh, predictive or machine learning, all that stuff. And there were hundreds of startup companies offering analytic services, <laughs> but I saw a problem they relied on the customers for the data. And when it came to the smaller customers, which I think is about 94 percent of the market, uh, there was no data to be found. And that's when I had that moment of going, okay, this is an area that we need to focus on. So what I decided to do is simply saying, okay, what are some of the things that's keeping small to medium-sized companies from really leveraging um, analytics, industrial IoT? Because if you think about it, they're the ones who can benefit the most. They're the ones who are most susceptible to downtime and business loss because of that. So the barriers we looked at was size, money, technical skills, and we designed our sensors to be kind of plug and play. And that's not so easy when it comes to industrial, but I think we've done it. Uh, Activation can be done by anyone, so we kind of started taking things away from the legacy guys, where you know you have people come run cables for 100 bucks a a foot. Um, They do the commissioning of the sensors. They do the Programming back into some proprietary architecture. And that's what we wanted to, to remove. So we have wireless sensors that you can easily install with a strong magnet yourself. You tap it with a phone. Uh, you make sure that the sensor is logged into the gateway and it all goes in to our back end. So we, we are in the process of finishing off something called ECM Dash that's built on the Amazon platform, which is our cloud-based equipment condition monitoring that anyone can use. So what we're simply saying is an argument that you know, customers can learn uh, together by sharing the data. So, you know, one of the things I had thought about is, let's say you and I drive the same year model of a car, and, and Ken, maybe you drive much more aggressive than me, right? So you accelerate hard, brake hard, corner, and all that kind of stuff, and I'm kind of slow, take my time. But we are told that you and I both should take our cars in for service at the same mileage interval. And this shouldn't be the case because we will have different rates of wear. So I'm thinking the same thing for machines. So if a small company doesn't have to service their equipment as often, or maybe extend the time between service by 30%, that's a big impact for for them. Uh, in addition to saving on labor and parts, you know they can also reduce the downtime that they would have and also be able to plan it. And analytics. Once we have enough data in our system, we have relevant data for trainable events. Uh, we can actually have a, a bit of a network effect where we can start comparing machine data from one customer to another. And from there, we're, we're going to reduce the time to analytics is what we're trying to do. And this is something that for small companies is hard to do because they just don't have the data. They don't have all this data they can combine together. So we're going to help build that. So that that's really what we're trying to do with SST wireless ultimately. Sensors is simply a tool to get the data, but really it's what we can do with the data to inform decisions that they make in terms of their operation and maintenance. That's ultimately what we provide uh, our customers.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. The, um, um, Can you say a little bit about the modalities of sensing you guys support and maybe a couple of use cases because uh, the audience may not be fully familiar with you guys?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I mean, there, there's three the most fundamental sensing we look at is, is high temperature, uh, vibration and pressure so with those three i can d- probably you know work on about 80 85 of most machine conditions so one uh area that we have is something called uh, wood pellet mills so in in British Columbia we have a lot of natural you know resources forestry they take the uh, sawdust and other uh, products of fiber from wood and they put that into these little wooden pellets Uh, they've been using this in Europe for a long time for home stoves but what's been happening is in Asia they've been using these wood pellets in replacement of coal So they're making a lot of this stuff and these machines get very hot. You're throwing sawdust into a chamber, which then uses a roller and a die to crush them into these little wooden pellets. Well, think of it. You got sawdust, air, and hot metal surfaces. If you don't monitor it, things can go sideways real bad. Um, Explosions, fires, and things of that nature. So one of the largest producers of uh, wood pellets now use our sensors in every one of the machines. So it actually goes inside the machine while it's operating and gives them real-time data about their temperatures of those rollers and when it gets to a critical temperature they can either slow down or shut down their equipment increasing safety reducing downtime and making sure that you know there is no um, catastrophic events like fires and explosions so that's kind of one of the aspects we do Uh, we do everything from monitoring water pumps uh, in municipal water treatment facilities, so that citizens can get pressure out of their taps. So, you know, that's something we're focusing on, especially in areas where it's unmanned. And I think, you know, down the road with COVID and everything else, this kind of having visibility into machines remotely will become more and more important.
0: Yeah, yeah, very clear. <clears throat> so one of our Momenta Ventures key investment thesis is industrial innovation powered by low-power wide area or LPWAN mm-hmm. networks, especially those based on uh, Semtech's LoRa standards. So what are some of the interesting industrial use cases you're seeing for LoRa?
1: Oh, there there's so many things. I mean, there's the actual sensors themselves, right? Uh, we've been using standard ISM RF uh, radios on them. And they have a range, but they're somewhat limited. And so, with the uh, implementation of LoRa, with Semtech and you know, using, the, using the stack, we should be able to extend that uh, reach quite a bit. So, when you have large industrial complexes, getting all those sensors and gateways talking to each other is always going to be a challenge. And so, LoRa has a much you know, uh, longer distance that we can, we can actually Get that data going, which will help us a lot. So right now we want to push that, you know, 300 feet to 500 feet range that we've been doing much further with LoRa. The, a nice, great thing is that uh, the LoRa works in the same frequencies that we already work with, which is about 915 megahertz in North America and 868 in megahertz in Europe. So. For us to change over has been a relatively easy process. So we're hoping very soon that we can get the first prototypes out there. So on top of LoRa, when you look at LP1, a lot of our customers um, such as in mining and forestry and other areas are not near any kind of public exchanges or public networks. So they kind of have to create their own network within the network. So I think uh, the combination of two has a lot of potential. The low power part is where we get excited because our wireless sensor and gateways require that. You know, we, we are relatively uh, working on very low power sources such as batteries and uh, low bandwidth applications, which both are very ideal for what we're doing. So keep in mind that, you know, let's say an open pit mine, uh, extracting copper and all that kind of stuff, is about two kilometers wide. And uh, getting signals from, you know, the trucks and all the equipment in there is a challenge. So LP1 and, and lower combination could help some, solve some of those challenges and reduce the cost for the actual customers.
0: Mm, yeah, I appreciate that. <clears throat> um, Going back to a topic that we were talking about a few minutes ago in terms of the time, uh, the World Economic Mm -hmm. Forum has used the term the Great Reset when referring to the long-term impact of COVID-19 impact, uh, the pandemic. What do you see as the impact of this reset on your industrial sensing space, especially (laughs) over the last several months?
1: Uh, absolutely. You know, I'm not sure if I would want to call it the Great Reset um, because some of the things I'm seeing as a result of the COVID-19 are things that I kind of expected to see happen. I think what's happening is that it accelerates the time frame that it's going to happen. So aside from the economic impact, as we especially come out of this, you know, uh, subsidies and emergency bailouts and all that kind of stuff. Um, A lot of people are going to retire or simply age out. And these are people who've made their career maintaining equipment. You know, they know their machines, they're the machine whispers, they know a lot. But this aging out is going to happen, it's going to happen much faster. And, And as far as I can see, you know there isn't a whole bunch of young people who you know wanting to take over spending their time maintaining municipal water pumps for example so these young people are going to want to use data and where does this data come from is the question so i think what we need to do is start capturing data sooner so we need to get more sensors and sensing out into the marketplace so that we can capture as much knowledge uh, as possible from these people while they're still here. So what one of the things we're doing on our on our platform is you know we're capturing the actual machine data itself, but these people who are still around that know the machines can click on the system at any time and add their notation. you know saying that the vibration felt uh, weird, I increased the amount of grease on this particular bearing. And so we want to capture as much of that data as possible the second part that we're we're looking at is due to covid you know physical distancing uh, it also means that you don't want people out there unnecessarily and so if you can reduce the need for physical visits to facilities i think that's going to be a part of that equation so you know having remote monitoring using sensors having everything go up to the cloud so that you can actually see what's going on and respond when is necessary will help reduce unnecessary travel and on-site time where you can come into contact. So I think, you know, COVID-19 is a pandemic. I think uh, people are projecting there'll be more issues and and more things coming forward. So this might just something, you know, we just need to adapt to and uh, use more of these technologies.
0: You know, I, I like your uh, I like your kind of pushback on the term the the reset. Um, we've gone so far as to coin the uh, COVID-19, at least the impact on our our portfolio companies and peers, as the great digital accelerator. And we're actually using that as a tagline for an upcoming webinar, because exactly what you said, it's shortening the time to uh, to um, one instrument and two, of course, accelerating the the need for it based on people leaving the workforce and of course remote distancing and things like that. So. So uh, I fully agree with you. It, it is very much an accelerator, and at least the uh, the stock market seem to agree in terms <laughs> of the backing of digital companies these days. So uh, That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So look, um, SST is the latest of of our investments in Canadian companies, all of which I must say have done extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna put I'm gonna make you put on your the uh, economic development hat here. <laughs> so as as a serial entrepreneur in Canada,
1: you're clearly a believer.
0: Um, so what makes Canada a great place for startups?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, we are a small country in terms of its demographic. Um, geographically, we're massive, but demographically, we're quite small. I use that 10% rule. So we're, we're 10% of the United States in terms of market and finances and everything. So it's not a great place for domestic market. Uh, it's also a difficult place to access capital, I found. But that said, it's a great place for innovation and there's a lot of advantages to Canada. I think the biggest thing is diversity of people from all over the world. So in our office, we have engineers from uh, Iran, Brazil, and other places that are bringing a lots of interesting ideas and perspective. So it's a great test bed, and there's also a lot of funding and services available where you can develop technology and then we're so close to the US where it's a massive market for us, right? So funding in terms of R&D, market development, it's very robust. We take advantage of, I would say, about four or five different programs that directly gives us a refund, for example, on scientific research and experimental development through our our tax uh, corporate returns. And then we have grants that we get from the National Research Council. And we even have uh, marketing funds that if we want to go after an international market, um, the government will pay for a certain amount of that. So it can help decrease some of our costs. So those are all great things in terms of how Canada has been set up to encourage development uh, research and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we still have an issue with companies, you know, once they get to a certain size, being you know, bought up by U.S. companies. But that's just kind of the way it works here. Uh, but the most important thing is, I think, is the diversity of the people that you have in in Canada, and that makes a big difference in terms of some of the, uh, you know, why we're good at uh, innovating.
0: Yeah, well said. Yeah, the uh, you know certainly uh, for those of us who do set up companies or invest in young companies, you you hear a lot about the uh, tax incentives uh, there yes, in yeah. Canada, and uh, and, and you know, being in Europe at this point, it's not dissimilar in that the larger U.S. companies tend to buy up the uh, the young companies in you know in region, but uh, in some sense that that means your pipeline is that good, right? So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a bad thing, and certainly not for the uh, the founders. So well, uh, it is also uh,
1: the U.S. dollar. Exchange does kind of help a bit too. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. Yeah.
0: So, as digital industry investors, we always like to ask, you know, for your recommendations on interesting startups, and especially now that you've got still have your economic development hat on. So, who are mm. your ones to watch in terms of startups?
1: Well, I was thinking about that. You know, I, I've been doing a lot of this um, uh, local venture, you know, reviewing companies, but I'm going to talk about uh, an area that's more than just a startup; it's a whole industry. Uh, One of the things that we're looking for is development in battery technologies. Um, Lithium batteries and and currently how we make batteries has a significant environmental impact. So for example, the amount of mining that's going on is actually increasing by 30 percent because of the fact that we're going to more uh, friendly or or green technologies like electronic vehicles or, or electric devices is actually increasing amount of mining and resource extraction that we're doing. So what I've been following is some companies that are looking for non-lithium power. And one of the ones that I came across is uh, sodium-based. So think of salt water instead of rare expensive lithium, right? So I've been looking at uh, a bunch of development, but there's a couple of companies that I'm watching because it's interesting. Um, there's a company called Blue Sky Energy out of Austria, and it's going after another company uh, that is called Aquion, which was uh, you know, backed by Bill Gates, they went through a bankruptcy, has reemerged, fighting off a, a bid from this Austrian company. But it's going to set up for a really, really good epic fight. But I wish them luck. I wish that they will be able to take some of these uh, developments and make it commercially viable. And this is what I'm I'm following is kind of in that power battery marketplace uh, is where I see the next big leap that has to happen, and for our kind of technology to be more sustainable.
0: Good, hmm, uh, good suggestion there. Um, a gentleman named Yap Groot, who uh, is uh, just joined, uh, actually will be CEO of a uh, antenna company here soon. He's currently okay. with Semtech. I just interviewed him for a podcast, which will publish in September. But he, he made an interesting prognostication. He basically said, look, uh, LP WAN is going to go away, so uh, low power will replace with no power, i.e., think mm. your energy harvesting, right? And WAN uh, versus mm. you know what he called kind of the micro cells or small cells, as they're often called, right? That are meshed together, right? So I thought yeah. it was interesting, but but that that they did trigger for me the number of companies we're seeing in both the battery technology space, but those that are quasi energy harvesting and moving to full energy harvesting, and um, mm-hmm. We are seeing more and more in that regard, and I think that will be yet another um, catalyst, if you will, to drive a lot of the distribution of sensing uh, and meshes and stuff. So, uh, Blue Sky Energy sounds like an interesting one, and uh, and Aquion. A- a- um, in closing, you know, can you provide some recommendations of books and or resources <laughs> that inspire you?
1: Um, we were talking earlier. I just love podcasts. I even follow – I go to sleep with them on. <laughs> so some of my favorite podcasts is like Spectacular Failures, How I Built This, Pivot, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Revisionist History, and Freakonomics. These are the ones I love listening to. Um, from a book's point of view, I tend to read more fiction on my downtime, especially uh, true spy novels and so on from the 80s. But uh, I found a book that recently I read called Loon Shots really interesting. It's about how uh, you can take crazy and different ideas and, and you know make them become reality. Um, I think the author that uh, wrote this book was a physicist that turned into an entrepreneur and has a very different perspective on things. So that's a book I recently enjoyed on a little camping trip I went on.
0: Excellent. Loon shots. I will have to take a look at that. And I agree with you on the podcast. I do enjoy listening to them as uh, as well as, as producing them. It's almost as much fun. Yeah. So, Christopher, <laughs> thank you for this insightful interview.
1: Well, thank you very much. I really had a good time.
0: Yes, as, as well. So this has been Christopher Chong, CEO of SST Wireless, and I'd like to say a long-term digital industry leader. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.